My name is Fiona Zeiger and you're listening to the Migration Podcast. Migration does not always take place across borders. Very often people move within countries. Yediminas Lesutis spoke to Jolina Sinanen about the displacement and resettlement of small-scale farmers because of mining activities in Mozambique and how these farmers cope with the ensuing changes to their lives. Geddes, welcome to the Migration Podcast. It's great to have you here today. Thank you so much for taking the time and congratulations on your new book, which is what we're here to talk about. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start by the very obvious question. Can you tell us a little bit about your new book? Yes, absolutely. Um, so the book offers a theoretical reflection on everyday politics and lived experiences of extractivism, dispossession and involuntary resettlement in Mozambique as central in understanding contemporary possibilities and impossibilities of livability within global capitalism. Mm -hmm. So empirically speaking, the book is based on extensive fieldwork materials that I collected between 2015 and 2016 in Mozambique. Um, during this time, I lived for four months in a resettlement village called Kateme that was built by Vale, a Brazilian mining company that resettled nearly 2,000 families that were displaced by coal mining in the region of Tet in central Mozambique. And these were predominantly small-scale subsistence farmers who relied on family labor and small-scale agricultural activities for their everyday social reproduction strategies. Uh, so during these, uh, these four months, uh, I carried out ethnographic research in the community of Kateme, trying to understand the lived experiences of the people who are subjected to dispossession and resettlement, coping strategies that these people have to employ, uh, as well as the spatial dimensions of these processes in relation to the coal mining in Clave and Tet and Mozambique's political economy at large. And in the book, I show how what might be conceived as marginal African experiences can, in fact, help us understand the core questions of global politics, capital, and resistance. It particularly focuses on understanding opportunities of the political and politization that might exist in the current um, overlapping, ongoing enclosures of life to multiple forms of violence that global capital continues to, to sustain and deepen. Mm -hmm. That is a, just a huge repertoire of themes already um, that you've outlined here. And um, you're talking about quite a distinct um, form of migration as well. Um, small scale farmers, purpose sort of purpose built migration for labor. Um, which I would I would sort of think about within the kind of rubric of, you know, sort of precarity and how it affects different groups of people who engage particularly in inter or interstate migration in different ways. And you've outlined several dimensions already, like the economic, the political, the local being subsumed by sort of global capitalism. So how did you see precarity manifest with the people you worked with? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a great question. I think the first thing that is important to mention that in my book, I approach precarity in a slightly broader sense than traditionally has been the case. So although theorized since the late 80s, um, scholarly work on precarity emerged and proliferated after 2008 crisis. However, most of this work continues to focus on experiences of exploitative labor regimes in the global north 
and to a lesser extent, it also focuses on violence of biopolitical regimes in liberal democracies. In the book, I understand precarity more broadly, and I approach it as a politically constituted condition of social life in general, that far and beyond labor relations is in, created by multiple forms of violence of capitalist development. So, and I specifically focus on structural, symbolic, and direct modes of this violence. And that's how uh, I kind of analyze precarity created by involuntary dispossession, resettlement, and intrastate violence. So let me give you a few examples of what I mean by these different forms and modalities of violence that unfold in the case of dispossession and involuntary migration. So structural violence that results from uh, in heightened forms of precarity is particularly exemplified by the lives of people who are subjected to displacement, mandatory resettlement, for example, in, in Tet, people were displaced by coal mining. They have been moved to different areas with limited access to fertile land, mm. with limited access to water resources, and with no alternative livelihood opportunities for them to take a part in. As mm -hmm. a result, they experience these hardships, everyday hardships in trying to sustain themselves. So in this context, precarity unfolds through structural violence that subjects a bodily and affective life to suffering, not striking, not salient, but manifesting in mundane forms of eking out a living. It is wearing out of a body, a fatigue that expands and overwhelms, absorbing limitations within spaces of one's life. And in, in this context, precarity is expressed as trying to make ends meet in very uncertain ways in the world and social space that renders one unable to have a, li a livable life. Mm -hmm. However, what is interesting, what I see in this context that whilst spatialities of extractivism expose most vulnerable populations to structural violence that amplifies their daily hardships, precarity is also produced and sustained through subjection to symbolic violence. So specifically, various imaginaries of a good life, progress, development, and other slogans that are used to justify structural violence being done to these people who are resettled and displaced by coal mining. So in the book, I discuss how the mining enclosure and dispossession were not constituted as aggressive enclosure that Marx, for instance, analyzes in, in his account of the violence of primitive accumulation. Instead, mining this induced dispossession was presented as a form of development as an and as an opportunity of a better life. Mm -hmm. And what is interesting for me, I kind of explore this tension, how in the context of structural violence, this fall, false hope that was given to people actually kind of entrenches suffering further because people still have hope that something that has been promised to them might still occur in the future. And they kind of hold on to this hope, which of course these kind of promises do not materialize because they were never meant to materialize in the first place. So effectively at the intersubjective level, it kind of perpetuates that precarity even more mm -hmm. beyond the material level, also at the kind of affective emotional level too. Wow. So, um, wow, you've just given us such a rich picture already about these kind of macro 
um, economic and political forces and how they impact very directly on you know these workers' lives. So, and you know, given us a couple of examples there about you know the the lived experiences that come from that. So, um, as an extension of that conversation, what are your main insights about um, this sort of category of migrant workers? How do they respond to this? You know, being plunged into this context of development of hope, but also a kind of you know sort of suffering that comes along with it. What were some of the tangible experiences or insights that that, that came out of some of your work with this this group? Yeah. So I think. It's a kind of important, I, I, I like to talk about the linearity of the narrative that I witnessed in TET. Mm. That in the first instance, people find it very important and understandably so to narrate the suffering and the injustice that has been done to them. And which of course is a very important thing to do to them, but it took me six weeks to kind of scratch beyond the surface of those accounts, what people actually do to cope with, with this injustice done to them. Mm. And what was interesting to see that in the context of this involuntary resettlement, when people were moved from one place to another, to deal with it, to deal with this new space, people take other forms of migration, whether temporary or permanent, to deal with, with kind of the effects of the displacement. So on the one hand, there's a permanent, uh, sorry, temporary migration where people go back to the areas where they have been resettled from, and effectively they end up trespassing the mining concession because the lands where they, where they used to live are still not being excavated, so they can still use that for their semi-subsistence agriculture activities. Mm -hmm. And another form of kind of coping is that people abandon their, their settlement site altogether in, and they leave in search for fertile land or other livelihood opportunities in other parts of the province. And I tried to follow some of these families who left the resettlement site uh, with in, in, in context of permanent mi migration and abandonment of their settlement site, that this kind of this dispossession being done all over again that you know on the in the first instance people were moved from their villages to a new resettlement site and because they were not able to live there and sustain themselves of everyday on everyday basis they had to leave the area and live in more distant very remote parts of the province where they might have fertile land to produce food to sustain themselves but as a result they live it, with no access to health facilities, to school facilities for their children. So they end up being even more marginalized by their own choice, of course, because they have to produce mm -hmm. food for themselves. But then this dispossession kind of occurs at multiple levels. Uh, so that was interesting to see how coping with precarity might actually lead to even more extreme forms of precarity. Mm -hmm. No, thank you for outlining those relationships earlier and then giving us a tangible um, impression of, of what that looks like. Another important thing to mention that, because I said that the book discusses the kind of politics of resistance as well, and I think it's important to mention that, of course, people are active agents. They are mm. not passive agents, you know, accepting symbolic and structural violence done to them. So in, in Katem, in this resettlement site, after several years of both structural and symbolic violence, people organized uh, collective forms of resistance, including protest, active protest of blocking the railway that was transporting coal from the lands where they used to live. 
And there, when this protest happens, then we not only have structural and symbolic violence, then we have direct state violence mm. that intervenes with rapid intervention forces and actually tries to kind of sustain and contain the protest from escalating further. So I want also want to reiterate that this is kind of triad of violence that, you know, when symbolic and structural violence is resisted, direct violence by the state, by authoritarian state will be used to, to sustain its kind of extract, extractivist strategies. Mm. The, the global and state processes, that, that relationship there as well between, you know, extractive companies and um, the workforce, these global processes, how they play out in the local is it's quite a, um, I don't want to say bleak, but definitely sort of this impossible or double bind of a situation. So yeah, just to bring our um, short discussion to a bit of a close, what do you think are the most pressing issues affecting this particular displaced population that you encountered in your research? There, I mean, obviously, some of it's contextually driven. Obviously, some of it is also, you know, there's a, there's that dialectic of kind of global local forces as well, global capitalism, some of the big picture themes that you outlined earlier in our talk. But what do you think are the most, uh, most immediate or pressing issues affecting um, the group you worked with? Based on the accounts and based on, on my ethnographic fieldwork, the most immediate con concern that these people have is that they want to have some sort of access to stable employment. Mm -hmm. That's what they want. They are, not, they are not against coal mining. They are not against resettlement per se, as long as they are given some form of opportunity to participate in these processes. And I think... It's important to acknowledge that, and also in the context of critical research, that we might conceptualize these processes as inherently violent, which they are in a lot of ways, but to most vulnerable people, they, the way they see it is as violent as it might be, as harmful as it might be, it's still better to be included in however precarious way rather than being excluded completely. And that's a kind of everyday tension that emerges that for me, intellectually, it's, it's very interesting to think about when we think about resistance and politics and capital. And then I ask that question, can we actually resist these forms of development and extractivism? Then people who are most margin, marginalized by these processes actually accept them as the only pathway to a more livable life. Mm -hmm. That's um, yeah, a profound point to conclude with. Thank you very much, Geddes, for telling us about the immense richness of your research that has gone into your new book, The Politics of Precarity, Spaces of Extractivism, Violence and Suffering, and we will include that as a link with your bio on the Edmisco podcast. Thank you for outlining some of those um, quite complex and um, you know, it's, I think it's for all of us who, who research migration, we think about, you know, these processes in sort of larger intellectual and abstract terms, but then to think about also to give an illustration about how, you know, people actually live these processes is always something that we try to include in our conversations here. So thank you as well for those. Um, it was a pleasure speaking with you and we wish you all the best on your future endeavours from the Migration Podcast. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you and I look forward to our future engagements. Gidiminas Lesutis is a Marie Curie Fellow in the Department of Geography, Urban Planning and International Development Studies at the University of Amsterdam. <laughs>